you brought your Bibles, and I hope that you have, turn with me to the book of Psalms, to the 15th Psalm, right? You might think of that as Psalm chapter 15, but it's really the 15th Psalm in the book of Psalms. So if you'll turn with me there to, psalm, to the 15th Psalm, I'd like to read that Psalm to you this morning. Uh, and then we'll go to the Lord together in a word of prayer. And I'll just try to share with you what God has burdened my heart with this morning. Psalm 15, the first verse says, Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh the truth in his heart. He that backbiteth not with his tongue. Nor doth evil to his neighbors, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor, in whose eyes a vile person is contemned. But he honoreth them that fear the Lord. He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. He that putteth not out his money to usry, nor taketh reward against the innocent. He that doeth these things shall never be moved. Let's go to the Lord together in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just humbly come before you this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the good day and for the many blessings, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity you've given us to gather here this morning to worship you in spirit and truth, Lord. Thank you for each one that's come our way here this morning. Thank you, Lord, for your sweet holy presence that we felt here this morning. Thank you, Lord, for the, just the many blessings that you've poured out on us. But we thank you most of all for your son, Jesus, Lord God, that you sent him and give him here this morning that we might have life and have that life eternally and abundantly. And God, I just pray as we go forward here this morning in this service, Lord, that your will would be done here this morning. God, I don't know the hearts of the people that are here this morning. Uh, Lord, but you know the heart of each and every one this morning. There is nothing that is hidden from you. Nothing uh, that you don't uh, don't know, don't see, don't hear. Right? You know it all. You you know from the beginning to the end. Right? Uh, you know the very thoughts and intents of our heart, Lord God. And so, Lord, I just pray right now, if there is anything in our life, in our heart, Lord, anything that we've let creep in, right, anything that we've dwelt on, whatever it might be, Lord, that, that hinders our walk with you, our relationship with you, that's coming between us and you, Lord, that would keep us from dwelling in your holy hill, Lord. I pray that today, Lord, that you would bring it to our mind, bring it to our attention, Lord, that you would convict us of it. God, that you wouldn't give us any peace until we would repent and get it out of the way. Because the most important thing in all, not just this life, but all of eternity, is our relationship with you, our walk with you. Nothing is more important than that. Nothing takes precedence over that. So, Lord, please, if there's something there, don't let us set it aside. Don't let us ignore it any longer. Lord, bring it to our attention and don't give us peace until we repent and get it out of the way. And Lord, if there's any here among us who don't know you, any that are lost and undone, any that's maybe just played church, any that just maybe give you lip service but doesn't come from their hearts, any that are just outwardly rebellious and rebelling against you. God, let today be the day 
just like the prodigal son, that they would be the prodigal, that they would come to themselves and realize the terrible spiritual condition that they're in, the state of spiritual waller that they are in. And God, let today be the day that they would, uh, they would repent of it all, that they would turn to you and they'd give it all over to you. Let today be the day of salvation. Let today be the day that they would be saved and redeemed. and uh, They would begin their walk, their relationship with you. And so, Lord, I just pray, Lord, for our service here this morning. Help us to get out of the way, especially help me to get out of the way. And let you be God of this service. Lord, that you might have your way and your will in our midst here this morning. And we'll be sure and give you every bit of the glory for it. Help me, Lord, to preach your word in a way that pleases you. Help me do it exactly how you want it done. Lord, I'm asking for your anointing, for your holy unction. Lord, clear my mind of everything but your message, your words, your thoughts, place on my tongue, the very words you'd have me speak. Lord, help it come uh, from my spirit to theirs, or through my spirit. Lord, for it comes from you. And I'll give you all the glory. Lord, we love you, we worship you, we praise your holy name. We ask it all in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen. Um, this psalm, the first verse is a question, okay? It's, it's repeated, right? It's the same question asked two different ways, but it's the same thought. It's the same idea. It's, Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Right? Which a tabernacle, um, first of all, a tabernacle is a temporary dwelling place, right? A, a tent, uh, tabernacle is actually another word for a tent. Uh, in this case, we're thinking about the tabernacle. We're thinking originally about the tabernacle, which is technically a tent. It's a nice, extravagant tent, uh, but it was made whenever uh, they were in Exodus in the desert, right? And, and, you know, God is carried around in this temporary place, this temporary dwelling place, this tabernacle, until finally, right, during the reign of Solomon, David's son, there is a permanent structure built, right? There is the temple built on what we refer to as the Temple Mount, Mount Zion, in Jerusalem. So the first part, Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? That should put us in mind of that. That, right, they had kind of a, a nomadic lifestyle there for a while. And then the question is rephrased. It's the same idea, the same thought, the same spirit in the question, but it takes us, it, it, it progresses, it takes us a step farther. Who shall dwell in thy holy hill, right? Dwell is live, right? That makes you think permanent, right? In thy holy hill is talking about Mount Zion, right? It, it is talking about there uh, uh, where, uh, where the temple is, right? The very place several hundred years earlier that Abraham had took uh, to offer Isaac, right? That is the very place that this brings us to mind. <clears throat> who lives in your house? What kind of person, right? Um, the thought is, who shall abide or remain in God's tabernacle? Or to apply the thought, right, it would be, what kind of people live in God's house, right? How, this could almost be a how-to, right? How to dwell with God, how to live with God. 
Um, that is the first verse is asking that question. The rest of the psalm, right, verses 2 through 5, answers that question. Now, for me, um, in my own personal Bible study, and whatever happens in my Bible study, whether my personal time with God, whether I intend for it to or not, actually I don't intend for it to, but it kind of reflects, it kind of comes out in, in your preaching. It does. Um, preacher don't spend much time in the Word. There won't be a lot of Word in his sermon, right? And there'll be a lot of stories, right? There'll be a lot of stories about himself and his family and, you know, experiences and things like that because that's where he spends his time. That's all he's got to talk about. Um, if there's a certain area of the Scripture, like, for instance, if he stays in the New Testament all the time and just really the Old Testament just doesn't... It just doesn't appeal to him much. He don't spend much time there. Maybe in his own way of thinking, he thinks that it's not very applicable to today, right? There's a lot that teach that, right? And you won't hear a lot, you know, taught from the Old Testament. Um, you know, it, it'll be, you see what I'm saying? His own personal, right, it will be reflected. It will come out. Um, my place, my thing, now don't, sorry to say don't judge me, but, uh, that's not what I mean. You judge me all you want. Don't, um, I don't know. It's just the way it is. Some people absolutely love songs. And it just, it does it for them. Other people are bored to death in songs. This is where I don't stone me. I'm one of those people that psalms, it bored me. I read Psalms doing my yearly reading plan. I would go to a Psalm. There's a lot of prophecy in Psalm. I would go to Psalm, you know, if I'm doing a cross-reference from something that had, you know, prophecy about Christ, you know, uh, in it. Otherwise, I just would not, I, I just didn't spend any time in Psalms. I wasn't a, I'm not a Psalms guy. I'm still not naturally a Psalms guy, right? It just doesn't appeal to me. God, uh, those of you that's been here for several years know this because I've confessed this before to you. God convicted me of that. God dealt with me and convicted me of that. I always thought Psalms was more for the artsy, musical type. I'm just not. I just don't have any of that. It doesn't even really appeal to me. I know this is going to sound crazy to you, but I just... Music don't mean a lot to me. Music has, and I want to be careful that I qualify that statement, music is powerful and has a profound effect. And when the Spirit of God moves in music, it absolutely moves me and moves my emotions. But as far as just like somebody that when I'm going down the road to have the radio on, if I do, it's seldom to music. If there's music playing, it's probably because you're riding with me and I'm doing it for your effect, you know, lowly in the background or whatever. For me, no. I, I'll, in all those years I spent driving right over the road and stuff, it was rarely that I had the radio on with music playing. That's just not me. I would rather sit in silence and just think, you know, than to, to listen to music. It's just how I am, right? Just how I'm made. So anyways, it's kind of like that with Psalms. I would rather be Anywhere. I would rather do a dive in in depth study in the book of Numbers or Leviticus or something like that than to spend a bunch of time in Psalms. It just, that's just how it is. 
Well, the Lord dealt with me and convicted me about that, right? Psalms is right in the middle of the Bible, right? It's a songbook that God put there. There is, it is so full, it is so rich theologically, right? There is so much there. And the element that I was missing, right, that I didn't see behind it, is there is there's an historical narrative there too, right? There is a set of events that happened around that, right? It wasn't just, uh, you, you know, it wasn't just somebody out sitting on a flowery hillside writing poems, you know. I mean, there is something there. There's something deep, profound going on there, right? David is a psalmist that wrote so many of the songs, right? Not all of them. Sons of Korah wrote some of them, right? It, it, you know, so there's, that's some Levites, right, that wrote some of them, right? The musicians in the, in the tabernacle, or not the tabernacle, but the temple. Well, tabernacle too, but anyways, they wrote some of them. Moses wrote, a, you know, a couple of them, right? There's a few songs written by others, but vastly most of them is written by David. David has an interesting life, right? There is a lot that happens and is going on in David's life, right? So there is, there's a history behind every one of them psalms. When God began to show that to me, psalms become a lot more interesting to me. Uh, I started in an effort to write to, to, to use the psalms more in our service and in our preaching and stuff. That's why I started doing the call to worship, right? I, I had a problem here. I couldn't get people to sit down and shut up. I mean, that's the truth, right? We get started in the morning, everybody's talking, and, and I went through half of whatever I'm saying, you know, and everybody is still. So anyways, I found out when you start reading the Bible, people will, you know, give it respect and honor, and they'll sit down. And the Lord just hit me with what a way to call us to worship is from Scripture, right? A call to worship. We should be rich. We should be bathed in Scripture. And so in response to that, the reason I started doing the, the call to worship when we started the morning. But anyways... I've been talking about David for the last week or two. Last week, I guess. And so I guess it's fitting to preach on a psalm this week. David, second king of Israel, is the author of this psalm. I had mentioned to you that we have three introductions to David. Right? If you go back to when we first meet David, think about what I was preaching on last week. When we first meet David... Our first introduction to him is when Samuel goes and anoints him as king. There's a reason we have three introductions. They're not in chronological order. Don't look at it and think this is chronological order because you'll come up with some things that don't make sense when you look at it that way. That's not the case at all. There's a reason why those three, and they're put in there just almost back to back, right? Two of them are back to back. One, you just go a chapter or two and you get to the next or to the third one, okay? But there's a reason we have three introductions to David. The first time that we see anything from David and we have an introduction to David is when Samuel comes and anoints him as king, right? He's just a young boy. He's a shepherd. You know, uh, uh, he takes care of his dad, Jesse's sheep. And so anyways, the, so first and foremost, right, our introduction, our thought ought to be of David is King David, right? It is his throne. It is with him that God makes the covenant that his throne will continue forever from his lineage will come the Messiah, right? The king of Judah, right? The lion of the tribe of Judah, right? And so anyway, so first and foremost, right? That's why thou son of David is one of the titles for Jesus, right? That's when, that's why old blind Barmedius, Barmedius, help me, Jennifer. What? Bartimaeus. You know who I am, the blind guy that sat outside of Jerusalem, or um, Jericho, Wow, I'm having trouble this morning. Pray for me. Anyways, whenever, whenever he come along and they're trying to shut him up and quiet him up, he starts yelling the more and the more, Thou son of David, have mercy on me. Thou son of David. Right? And, and so anyway, so first and foremost, that's our thought of David. Is David 
16. But then the next, I mean, it's in the same chapter, it's right afterwards. We have the introduction of David, psalmist. Right? The Spirit of the Lord leaves Saul, right? Because Saul rejected God, so God rejected Saul. And the Spirit of God leaves Saul and dwells in David. And Saul basically goes crazy, basically goes insane. And they call a man, which if you read that closely, they already um, speak of David as a mighty warrior, right? That's because probably the incident with him and Goliath has already taken place. But anyways, they call David the son of Jesse to come and to play his harp, to play music, right? The psalmist to come and sing psalms to King Saul. So that's the second introduction, right? So first and foremost, David is King David, right? And then he is David the psalmist. And then thirdly, right, just a couple chapters later, or a few chapters later, I guess three chapters later, we have the incident of David and Goliath. And we have David, thirdly, is the warrior, right? Mighty king, right? Uh, he, great warrior, right? Anointed of God. It wasn't, he wasn't big and strong. He, he wasn't, uh, you know, he, he wasn't like Samson. He wasn't, he wasn't like, he, he didn't walk out there and look like, you know, Hulk Hogan or anything like that. You know what I'm saying? He probably wasn't that big of a guy. But he was David. God had raised him and anointed him and was with him. And he was David, the Lord's warrior, the mighty warrior, right? That's why his sin, part of his sin is so great in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, is he wasn't out leading God's people in battle. He was at home. Right? He, was, he was at home laying around being lazy, lusting after one of his soldiers' wife, Bathsheba. So anyway, so we look at this and we see David as the psalmist. Okay, I guess I preached last week about David as the king. This week it's David the psalmist. This psalm here, Psalm 15, uh, we don't have a lot of detail. So some is just kind of putting two and two together, reading between the lines, speculating a little bit. But this psalm is, was written when the Ark of the Covenant is being brought to Jerusalem. Okay, I, I don't know if you realize the story or know how that goes, but uh, if, if you remember, um, the Ark of the Covenant is not really talked about, thought about much during the reign of Saul. Actually, what had happened was, uh, during, the time, during Samuel's days, is... Uh, Eli's two boys, right, take it out, right, the, the Israelites are fighting against the, the Philistines and they're not doing good, so they decide they're going to take the Ark of the Covenant out there like it's some sort of magic weapon, you know, and then, then they're going to win. Well, it doesn't happen at all, right? The Philistines defeat them and take the Ark of the Covenant. When Eli gets news of this, that's when he falls off of his stool and breaks his neck, you know, and dies. And so the Ark of the Covenant is captured. Uh, the Philistines have it for a while, but they, you know... It, God curses them because of it, and it's not long. They want rid of it, and what do they do? They put it on a new cart, right? They build a brand new cart, put it on it, put two, uh, the Bible uses the word kind, and it's talking about just old cows, hook two cows up to it. They're not, they're not oxen, they're not trained to plow, they've never had a yoke put on them before, but they just stick them on it, they take their babies away from them, so by nature, right, them old mama cows should go straight to the barn where the babies are, uh, but to make sure that it's gone, uh, they just turn them loose and see where they go. Well, I mean, God's guiding this thing, right? And them cows, they, I mean, they cut ruts. They make a beeline for Israel, right? They take the Ark of the Covenant back where it belongs on a new cart. Uh, the, they take the Ark 
and when they place it, right, they don't even put it back in Shiloh, they don't put it back in the tabernacle. There's actually a Levite by the name of uh, Obed-Edom, I believe is what his name is. And it's, it stays at his house for like 20 years or 20 plus years. And then we get to the point, right, you can read about it, I think it's 2 Samuel chapter 6, parallel account of that's 1 Chronicles chapter 13. But anyways, David decides it's time, right, the Obed-Edom, right, that is taking care of the ark, his, I mean, it's obvious, God has blessed him, right, and, and David is, at, is adamant, it is time to bring the ark to Jerusalem. This is where we need to establish, right? Remember, David's wanting to build the, uh, the temple. He's wanting to do these things. That God won't let him because he's a man of blood and there's blood on his hands, but he's still trying to do everything he can to get ready, and he is wanting the ark brought home. And remember, there's this whole incident, right? So foolishly, right? Um, David imitates what the Philistines have done. The Philistines have built a new cart and transport the ark on a cart. And so David, it's so crazy. And it's funny too, this may be a coincidence, but you can read about the Philistines and their, their foolishness and, and, and transporting the ark on a new cart in 1 Samuel chapter 6. And you read about David trying to repeat the, their stupid mistake in 2 Samuel chapter 6. But anyways, David goes to do the same thing. And there's a couple of these priests that are that are driving the cart, and what happens, right? Well, it's an old two-wheeled cart with a, you know, an oxen pulling it or whatever, and it hits a rough spot, right? There's no air ride suspension on it, right? There's no leaf springs on it or anything like that. It does this number, and, and Uzzah goes, oh my goodness, the ark of the Lord's going to fall off there, and he puts his hand up there to stabilize it. No! No, God's absolutely not. I mean, this is almost beyond our understanding because we think, well, that's an innocent move, but God strikes him dead right at that point. David is angry, right, with the Lord for doing this and upset, and so they take it back to, and I feel like they've just left Obed-Edom's house, you know, and so they take it back there and go on, what are we going to do? Well, he messed up. It clearly states in the Word, the priest Bear the ark. It says that over and over and over. They were special rings on the side of that, right? The ark is like this big, think about this big chest, right, with a fancy lid on it and stuff, okay? And so there's these special rings, right, and these special gold-plated poles that go through them rings, and there's certain plea, uh, priests, I believe if I remember right, it's the sons of Korah, that are supposed to carry that thing by hand. David should have known that and should have known better. So, takes it back, he lets a few months go by, cools down, realizes his mistake, what he had done. And so he does it the second time the right way. And when he does it that second time the right way, somewhere right there in that time frame, maybe it's in those few months between, he writes Psalms 15. Right? Who is it? Who lives in God's house? Who dwells in God's presence? Right? So then here we are. We have that question. And I think the answer is so important to us today. Because remember, right? Recall that the, the tabernacle represented 
the earthly presence of God, of Jehovah God, where he dwelt, right? That's what it represented, okay? It, says, it literally says he dwelt between the two cherubim. And so we need to think about that and bring that to us today. What does it mean to live in God's presence? What does it mean to live in God's tabernacle today? In his house, right? I'm going to just give it to you for a Christian. I think that means uh, that we live lives, we live a consistent Christian life, okay? I, I, I honestly think that that's what, that, that is the heart of what it's getting at, right? And the reason that I say this, and, and hopefully I can make this make sense right now, is I believe the Bible teaches, as a matter of fact, that's why I had Ann read the scriptures that she read this morning. I believe the, that the Bible teaches that if you are a really, that if you're, you are really a Christian, You'll act like it. In other words, it will show. And so the Bible says that each Christian, and this is what Ann had read this morning from First uh, Peter chapter 2, is that each Christian is a living stone built up into a spiritual house, right? We are the dwelling place of God today. No longer uh, the tabernacle, the earthly tabernacle, tabernacle that he now dwells in is the Christian, right? It says it three times in the New Testament. Know ye not uh, that, that the Spirit of God, right? It says it in different ways, three different ways, but it, that, that the Spirit of God dwells in us, right? Uh, and so here we are. We are, the, we are like living stones, right? Blocks, part of that house built up into a spiritual house. And we are, each one of us, are a part of that spiritual house, God's spiritual house here on earth. So the question still is, just because it went from something physical in the Old Testament to something more spiritual now in the New Covenant or the New Testament time period, we still have the question, what kind of people are a part of God's house? What do they look like? How do they behave, right? What do they do and how, is it, how do they live? What kind of lives do they live? And it's answered in the psalm here. We start out in verse 2. Right? It's asked the question, who lives in God's house? Who dwells uh, in his holy hill? Right? He that walketh uprightly. Right? He that walketh uprightly. Right? Those that live a life of integrity. Right? They, uh, those that are part of God's house, that dwell in God's house, they live an honest life. They walk in the truth. Right? They strive to live a life, a, a blameless life. Right? A life that is above reproach. Right? They avoid all appearance of evil. Right? They live holy lives. Right? Uh, the, the next part of verse 2 says, and work is righteousness. Right? They do what is right. Let me explain just a minute about righteousness here for just a second because we get a little confused and a little tangled up on this sometimes. Uh, but what it's talking about here is I think the technical terms would be absolute righteousness 
and relative righteousness. I, I think that's probably the technical term. But in other words, what we, absolutely, what we think of is what might be considered or thought of as absolute righteousness, which we are not, nor will we be in this side of life. That's why we're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. He is the only one that is completely, totally righteous from, from the beginning of, uh, of his earthly life to the end. Well, from beginning to end, he is completely and totally righteous, right? That's why it says, uh, Colvin quoted the scripture this morning whenever he was reading that none, none are righteous. No, not one, right? That's from Romans, right? None of us, right? That's talking about that absolute, complete, total righteousness, right? Well, none of us are. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? We've all rebelled against God. That's why we need to be saved. That's why we need salvation. That's why Jesus came and died on Calvary's cross for us. But then as a Christian, once you get saved, there is something that I'm going to coin it as, whether it's the right term or not, it's what I call it, relative righteousness. In other words, through Christ, the curse of sin is broken. The bondage of sin, that bondage, that yoke around our necks are broken. Because of what Christ did, we, right, whenever we accept him, Right When we ask Him into our life, into our hearts, right? When we surrender it all and turn it over to Him, we are what we refer to as born again. Spirit of God comes in us. We are born again. We are a new creature in Christ. Old things are passed away. Behold, we are a new person, right? A new man or a new woman, right? We don't do the same things. We don't think the same way. We don't desire the same things. Now, is there struggles with that old sinful nature? Absolutely. But it no longer has dominion over us. Romans chapter 6 makes that clear over and over and over, right? It's power, right? It's reign over us has been broken. And we can go on and we can live right. We can go on and live a righteous life, right? In other words, we can do, that's why I was talking about that relative righteousness, right? We can make the choice to follow God and to follow His Holy Spirit and obey Him, right? Be empowered by the Spirit of God to do what God desires us to do. Or we can make the choice to reject, to turn away, to harden our heart, to become calloused, to do what our own flesh, our own desires. One and two. So, those that live in God's house, what kind of people? Right, you could almost look at Psalms 14 and 15. And 15 you could look at as the way of righteousness. And, 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 and Psalm 14 is the way of wickedness. Maybe Lord allow and I'll preach on that one next week or the week after or later on. But anyways, those that dwell in God's house, they walk uprightly. They do what is right. They do what is morally right before God, right? It's not this whole thing that uh, who decides what's right and wrong. It's God that decides what's right and wrong, not man, right? We've got the idea, right? And I've heard it so many times in the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years that, you know, the Supreme Court, it's the law of the land. The Supreme Court decides what is right. And they have the final say on what is right and what is wrong. Baloney. That's a bunch of garbage, right? I, I'd like to use stronger words than that, really, but I, I won't. But anyways, um, God decides what is right and what is wrong. And if God says it's wrong, I don't care what nine men in black robes decide. I don't care what all of the men on all of the earth say. If God says it's wrong, it's wrong. Period. End of story. You can either accept 
God and God's word and what God says, God's ruling, His determination, or you can rebel against Him. Choice is totally yours. Right? That's why that free will is out there and part of our name. We believe that you've got a free will to either accept God and follow Him or to reject Him and rebel against Him. Totally up to you. Don't come whining at the, at the end of the judgment, right, whenever you face your consequences of your decision, right? But God gives you that opportunity, that decision to decide. But those that dwell in God's house, it's the ones who choose to do what is right. They're the ones who are careful to maintain their conscience, right? That it is void of any kind of offense, right? They would rather go to heaven with a good conscience than to stay here on earth with a bad one. They're always concerned about the well-being of others. If we go on and we look at the rest of verse 2, it says, And speaketh not the truth in his heart. Uh, or not not, I'm sorry, and speak of the truth in his heart. Verse 3, first part of that goes with it. And uh, let's see, verse 3 says, He that backbiteth not with his tongue. What's it talking about there? They don't gossip. They don't gossip. They don't run around, right? The actual Hebrew word here gives the picture of running around, right? Of walking around talking. That's the actual, that's the actual word picture created with the original Hebrew word that's used here, right? Uh, is walking around talking, right? They don't run around what we, we call run around talking about everyone and everything. They're not a tail bearer. They're not a rumor bearer, right? Uh, they are those type of, the, you know what they are? They're the type of people. You ever heard anybody say this and actually literally could say it uh, with a clear conscience and mean it about somebody when they passed away. I've heard it a few times, right, at a funeral or visitation or something when they say, you know what, they never had a bad word to say about anyone. That's the type of person that's talking about. Those that dwell in God's house, that is the person, right, that at the end of life you can honestly say they never had a bad word to say about anyone. They weren't a gossip. They weren't a, ta- a talebearer. They didn't run around talking about everyone else's problems. If you look at the rest of verse 3, it says, Nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor. Well, you could say, first of all, they're good neighbors. But if we look at this, you know, we know from, uh, from Jesus himself what the definition of a neighbor is, right? In the parable of the Good Samaritan. What's it saying to us? It's saying that they're not evildoers. That they desire to help. Their instinct is to encourage other people, help those who need help, right? They're not running around gossiping and backbiting, right? They are not a a source of problems and trouble, right? They uh, they do not do things that would cause their neighbors uh, to doubt right, or enter into temptation, right? There are so many who wear the name of, of, of Christian but go out and do all these things that it's talking about here, right? To go out and, and spread gossip and do all kinds of wickedness and stuff, whereas people, and they genuinely mean it, right? The lost people who are their neighbors and their friends and family or whatever that's watched them and said, if that's what it means to be a Christian, I don't want anything to do with it. How is that any different than myself? Or they'll point to so-and-so who's a known drunk or whatever the case may be. No, those that dwell in God's house, they're they're not like that. They're the ones that uh, 
Christians look at, or that people look at that knew them and around them and say, yeah, they were godly people. They were good neighbors. They never caused, uh, they were something to esteem and to, to try to model your behavior after, not something that would cause doubt or temptation. They set a good example. They are a source of light for everyone that they have any kind of interaction with, right? They're a source of light. Verse 4 says, In whose eyes a vile person is condemned. Contend. That actually means like despised, okay? But he honoreth them that fear God. He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. They despise vile people, wickedness, evil. They despise the, the, the vile and wicked person's ways, right? Sin is literally a reproach to them. They find it disgusting and disgraceful. That's one of those things that you should not, right? If you dwell on God's holy hill, right? If you're one of those that have a relationship, you're in close communion with God and the Holy Spirit of God dwells within you, sin should bother you. It should be physically repulsive to you, right? It should be one of those things that you shouldn't be able to pull right up next to it and find humor or enjoyment in it or with it. It should be something that bothers you. Why? Because they love what God loves and they hate what God hates. Now, the point here is not so much about the emotion of hatred as it is about the deliberate rejection of sin and its wicked ways. Everything that goes with it. It goes on in that same verse in verse 4 to present the contrast. So in other words, in contrast, they honor them that keep their word. Those that fear God. Those who, it says, changeth not, right? That Those that are stable, right? So in other words, there is a repulsion. There is, a, there is, there is, think about two magnets, right? If, if you turn them where the, what is it, the poles are opposite, they're attracted together. And if you turn the magnets the other way, there's actually a repulsion, right? That's actually the technical term there. There's a pushing away, right? That's the way it is, right? With those that dwell in God's, in God's uh, holy hill, uh, those that have the relationship with God, that walk with God, when they're around that wickedness and that vile and that sin, there is a natural repulsion, a pushing back there, right? Don't want to be around it. Don't want that around me. Don't, you know, can't, don't want anything to do with that. And then when they're around others that are godly people, that truly live it, truly believe it, truly in their heart, there is a drawing, there's a magnetism there. They are solid, steady, not flip-flopping around, jumping from here to there. They're the kind of people you can count on. And in verse 5, he says, He that putteth not out his money to usury, nor taketh reward against the innocent. So that's the last thing that is the um, description of those that dwell in God's holy hill. 
What it's saying is that they lend to those in need without charging interest, and they will not take a bribe. What it means is they're truly generous, right? They're not simply interested in making a profit. Understand this, when the Bible talks about usury and interest and things like that, it, it makes it clear there's, there's different types and categories and in, in what it's talking about here. So it's not talking about somebody who is looking to expand their business, right? Somebody who is looking to borrow money in order to uh, grow their business and make wealth and make money, right, that's got one farm and doing really well and they want to buy the next farm next to them and expand their business and expand their wealth. It is not saying that it's wrong to charge them interest. It would be wrong to charge them an exorbitant interest, you know, super high interest, but it's not wrong to ask interest on that money. What it's talking about is people that are in need people that are hurting, right? People that are in that cycle. What I really think of is I think of like the payday loan, right? Nobody is going to a payday loan unless they are hurting and they're in bad shape and they need money, right? And then when they go, they get charged an extremely high interest rate and it just keeps them in a cycle of debt, of bondage. It literally makes them a slave, right? And that is what the Bible is talking about. So in other words, what it's saying to us, if you want to know how that applies to you, it's not wrong for your money to be in the bank or invested in a business and it draw interest or some sort of earnings off of it. Nothing wrong with that whatsoever. What is wrong is if your brother or your sister, right, and I'm talking about in Christ, right, I'm talking about your neighbor, somebody around you that is hurting and in need, right, and they are in, in terrible financial shape, it is wrong for you to say, you know, I need to lend them the money to pay their electric bill, right, or, or to buy food for their family or whatever, but I'm going to charge them interest. You've got to pay me back with 20% interest or whatever, that's what it's condemning. That's what it's saying. It's taking advantage of those who are in need, right? The smart businessman is never going to take a loan with some sort of high interest rate like that. But the man whose family is starving is going to agree to anything to be able to put bread on the table. And it's talking about taking advantage of that and the greed that goes with it. So it's saying those that dwell in God's holy hill are truly generous, right? They're not simply uh, greedy and about making a profit. They live by these standards. And then the last line in the psalm, right, tells us, it sums us up what the end is for that person. He that doeth these things shall never be moved. In other words, those that live by these standards shall not be moved. They shall not be shaken. They shall not stumble. No matter what comes at them, they will be solid. They will, this should be reminding you of, psalm one, of the first psalm, right? They shall be like that tree planted by the waters, right? They're unmoving, planted there on that solid rock. So here's my question to you. I'm, I'm done. Here's my question to you. It's simple. But hear me. Where do you live? Where do you live? Do you live, do you dwell in God's holy hill? Or not? I just went down, right? I'm not judging you. The word of God has laid it out here. You judge yourself according to it. Where do you fit? Did I just read a description of you? 
or is it not even close? So my question to you this morning, where do you live? You need to figure it out now. And you need to act accordingly because it has eternal consequences that are very real. Listen to me. As Jennifer starts to play a song of invitation, hear me on this. Maybe give me just a second, honey. Hear me on this. Now go ahead and start playing. You will spend an eternity somewhere. You've been lied to. You've been lied to a lot. You've been told that when you close your eyes, that's it. When you close your eyes for the last time, that's it. There's nothing after that. If you believe that, you're going to be in for a rude awakening one day. You're going to be, you're going to be in for you're going to be very surprised. Because when you close your eyes for the last time, that's just on this side of eternity. That's just here in this world. Your next moment, you'll find yourself before the judgment seat. And there will be a judgment made. And I pray that it not be made based solely on, what you, on your actions, how good a person you were. Because every single one of us, myself most of all, will come up wanting. We'll be judged short. That's what it means when it says we fall short of the glory of God. We've all sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. And if my judgment or your judgment is based totally on that, we're going to spend an eternity cast out from the presence of God. You know what they call that? They call that hell. You can call it whatever you want, but that's what it is. It is hell. And that's where no hope beyond that. No second, no third, no fourth chance. No further opportunity. You made your choice. You've been warned. If you hadn't been warned before, you've been warned right now. And that's it. Or, the only other judgment, right? You're guilty, I'm guilty, we're all guilty. There is no God says, oh, you were such a good old boy and you helped this person, you helped that person. We're going to declare you innocent. No, 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 no. If you've accepted Jesus, then we are, as we use the term, clothed in His righteousness. We are covered, as the Bible says, covered in His blood. Right? You go back and read in Exodus, the Passover angel, right? When it, all you see is the blood, right? The death angel. All God will see when He looks at us as Christ, is Jesus and His perfect life and what He has done. Because that's what it means. That's what it's talking about when Jesus bore our sins, right? When He took our punishment, right? When He died for us on, our, on Calvary's cross for the things that we did. So here He is. He's extending this opportunity to us. And it's up to you whether you accept it or reject it. But you will, mark my words, you will stand before God one day in judgment. 
and you will stand before him and it will either be on your own merits or it will be on Jesus' merits, on what he did. Trust me. Trust me. You don't want to stand before God based on your own merits. What you do with the message, with the gospel of Jesus Christ, what you do with the Lord is of utmost importance. And you must make that decision now before it's too late. I don't know when you'll draw your last breath. It might be after a while. You know that, right? I've been in church with people and preached to people who drew their last breath before they even come back for the evening service. That happens quite often. Or God may bless you and you may have 50 or more years still left. But I'm telling you, you've got to make the decision. You get, and I pray that you make the right one before you draw your last breath. Would you stand to your feet? I want to open an altar and I want to give you an opportunity to come this morning. Spirit of God dealing with you, would you come this morning? If you've got a need, if you've got a burden, would you come this morning? If you realize this morning that you're not where you ought to be with God, I'm begging you, would you come and get things right with Him before it's everlasting too late? Whatever it is, don't miss this opportunity this morning. Maybe there's just some things that you need to talk to God about, right? Maybe there's a burden on your heart. Maybe there's somebody you need to be praying for. Maybe the problem is, is in your own life, in your own heart, right? In your own relationship with God. I don't know what it is. It's not any of my business. It's between you and the Lord. But if you've got a need, if you've got a burden, we've got a place here set aside for you to come and talk to the Lord. So if you, if you, if you feel the Holy Spirit drawing you, tapping on your heart, would you come this morning? Would you come?